thank you for your son, Jesus, who died to take away our sin, to give us righteousness, to give us new life. And Father, we, we didn't deserve any of that. The first gift of Christmas was not a, a gift deserved by the people. In fact, uh, quite the opposite was true. So we thank you for your generous, loving, sacrificial gift of sending Jesus to walk among us, to be born as a child like we all are, to grow up on this earth, to obey his mom and dad, to live life the way that we live, but to do so without sin, so that he might be our example, so that he might be our replacement, so that he might live the righteous life that we were supposed to live and we couldn't, and that he would die as the payment for the sin, a death that we couldn't die either, because our sacrifice would not be pure and blameless as his sacrifice was. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this time of year where we re remember the Advent, the Incarnation, God coming down to live among men. What a blessed, blessed truth. And, and what a, a wonderful fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies that said that, that it would happen. And because those prophecies came true just as you said they would, we have great hope and great confidence that the, the prophecies about our future resurrection, our future home in glory, that those promises are true as well. Father, thank you for meeting with us this morning. We ask that you would bless our time in your word, that you would be glorified, that your spirit would work in us, and that we in our hearts would rejoice over the birth of the Son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I invite you to join me in the book of John. We'll be in the Gospel of John, uh, looking at... The Advent, looking at the coming of the Christ through the writing of John. Uh, so today and next week, we have just a little mini-series for Christmas. We're setting aside Philippians. And our desire is not to dwell in nostalgia or custom or myth, but to focus on the true importance of the birth of Jesus. So today we're going to look at the birth of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Now, John spends zero syllables rehearsing the physical aspects of the birth of Jesus Christ. You're not going to find a manger. You're not going to find the shepherds. You're not going to find angels. You're not going to find any of the events of his actual birth in the book of John. But John's not alone among the Gospels in presenting Jesus without the physical birth. Um, the book of Matthew addresses the birth of the Messiah through the perspective of Joseph, but says actually very little about Jesus' birth himself, other than Mary gave birth. <laughs> uh, not exactly a lot of details there. Uh, so Matthew starts out with uh, the genealogy of Joseph, beginning with Abraham uh, through David all the way up to Joseph, the husband of Mary. 
And then he recounts the struggle Joseph faced having this fiance, Mary, who was clearly pregnant, and how God had sent an angel to convince him not to divorce her, but instead to take her as his wife. So all Matthew says about the birth of Jesus is summed up in Matthew 1.25. says, But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. But for as little as Matthew says about the birthday of Jesus, Mark says even less. If you turn to Mark 1, you'll see Mark starts with the the ministry of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. He skips uh, the birth of Jesus. He skips all of the early life of Jesus and starts right into the ministry of Jesus. So when we think of the birth of Jesus, we often, if, if we think biblically at all, we often think of Luke 2, right? Isn't that what's supposed to be pictured behind me? Whether it is or not is probably irrelevant, but it's, it's what we picture, isn't it? But the balance of Scripture looks more at the reality of his deity than at his humanity. Luke 2 looks at his humanity, and it's not wrong to look at that. Um, in fact, it's in the Bible, and we're going to look at it next week. Come back next week on Christmas Day. By the way, Pastor Dan, uh, Christmas falls on Sunday 11 years later, so uh, we're not going to have this opportunity to have Christmas on the Lord's Day for another 11 years. I invite you to be here next Sunday. The rest of Scripture puts more emphasis on the eternal nature of the Son of God uh, more than His humanity. And I suppose that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because people saw Him face to face. You didn't have to convince the, the, the disciples that Jesus was physically real because they were there with Him. And they they could touch him, and they could speak to him. They interacted with him. They witnessed his death. People didn't have to be convinced of the humanity of Jesus. They saw it. Which is perhaps why there is so much more ink dedicated to the revealing and confirming that Jesus is and always has been fully God. Even when he became fully man at the incarnation. So in today's passage, if, if you haven't turned there already, I invite you to John chapter 1. I don't know if I told you that. I apologize if I didn't. We'll be in John chapter 1. Uh, in today's passage, John exposes the irony of the advent. Jesus, the creator, came to his creation and he was rejected. Jesus, a Jew, came to his own people, God's chosen people. And he was rejected. Read along with me if you would. John chapter 1 beginning in verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born Not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You pray with me. Father, we thank you for the reality of the incarnation that Jesus, God the Son from eternity past, stepped into time and became man, being fully God and fully man so he could be our sacrifice. Lord, I pray that this truth would permeate 
our souls today, that we would understand it, that we would love it, and that we would live in light of this truth. So, Father, guide my words and our thoughts that we might be pleasing to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our big idea is quite simple this morning and yet quite profound. Our big idea is God became man. We see in verses 9 and 10 that Jesus came to be light to everyone. When John speaks of the world, he's not talking about the place, he's talking about the people. John 3:16 For God so loved the world, not talking about the dirt. He's talking about the people. So uh, when it says here in John chapter 1, verse 9, that the light was coming to everyone, that he was coming into the world, he's talking about the people. So what is this light that came into the world that was soundly rejected? Well, back up with me if you would. Uh, John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the word, that word logos, Uh, that John uses, that Greek word logos that John uses, he uses to refer to Jesus because he is the living word of God. If you want to know what God the Father wants us to know, listen to the words of Jesus. Now, he wants us to know more than that because he wants us to, to know the word of God, the Bible itself. But Jesus came as the living word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. If there is any question in your mind that Jesus uh, is something other than fully God, you have to wrestle with verse 1 of John chapter 1 because he makes it so clear. I mean, it's poetic, so that might throw you if you're not quite into understanding words. But, but he, he's not unclear that Jesus has always been God. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And because this is the, the first passage in this, uh, this epistle, this, not, not this epistle, but in this, this book, this gospel, uh, John gives a little bit of, uh, a little more introduction in the following verses, but then picks up right where he left off in verse 5, in verse 9, where we started this morning. The Godhead consists of one God in three persons. And of the three, it is God the Son, Jesus, who speaks and all things are created. Jesus, the living Word of God, has always been God, has always been with God. Now that sounds a little contrary to our Western minds, but if you've been around biblical teaching for very long, you understand the Trinity enough to recognize that when we say that that someone can be with God and be God, that's not actually contradictory at all, is it? It's a hint at the Trinity. He has always been God. He has always been with God. God is one. He is three persons, yet he is still one. Now, the Trinity doesn't have to make your head explode. It doesn't have to give you a headache to think about the Trinity, but it's okay if it does. But we can accept and believe what the Bible teaches about God, even if it is beyond our full understanding. It's okay. God ought to be beyond our full understanding, should he not? The true light, verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone has come into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Let's say it's the middle of the night at your house. There are no lights on. 
There's no light leaking in from the outside. It is dark. Darkness is all you can see. What happens to the darkness when the light is turned on? You can't miss it, can you? In fact, it doesn't even have to be that bright of a light, does it? When it's pitch black and you have just a single candle flickering, it can't be missed, can it? The Bible tells us that Jesus is the light, that he entered into the darkness of the people of this world and people noticed, they did see him, they did notice him, but by and large, rather than turning from their sin and believing in Jesus, they instead rejected him. It's true, some believed, but John is simply rounding up by saying that the world rejected him because the vast majority of the world did. Jesus is the light. He is the only way to be made right with God. John, quoting Jesus in chapter 8, verse 12 of his gospel, says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Our natural state is darkness. In our natural state, we're the opposite of everything that God is. Jesus is light, we are darkness. God is holy, we are sinners. He is eternal, we are mortal. In fact, the Bible says that our life is, is like a breath. It's there for an instant and gone. Jesus came to bring us light. He came so that we might be like him, that we might put on immortality. Only Jesus, the God-man, could do this. Did you notice how verse 3 is somewhat repeated in verse 10? Verse 3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 10, he says, He was in the world, and the world, the, the people of the world, uh, were made through him, yet the world did not know him. He's the creator. Christmas is just one week away. Done shopping? Have you started shopping? Oh, okay, okay. Um, at Christmas, we celebrate God coming to earth. Yet Jesus' life did not begin at, at conception like your life did and my life did. Jesus has always been. In fact, he, the creator, was never made he just always was. It's okay if the eternal past of Jesus makes your head spin a little bit. Again, that's not bad for us to struggle to understand that. The Creator stepped into creation to walk among humans, to walk among us. We are the only creatures made in the image of God. And we, His creation, turned our backs on the Creator. Now, you might say, well, I wasn't there. That wasn't me. We would have done the same thing. Creation turned its back on the Creator, but it's actually worse than that. The Creator stepped into creation, and creation killed the Creator. And actually, it's worse than that. 
Not only did the creator step into creation and then the creation killed the creator, we killed the creator blaming him for the things that we do. Blaming him of sin. In fact, the the accusation that the the religious leaders brought up against him was, was that he was blasphemous, that he claimed to be God. Well, it's not blasphemy when it's true. Jesus came as light to mankind, and mankind rejected him. Verse 11, he came as light to his own, to everyone, and then to his own. Verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So the world at large rejects Jesus. Surely his own people, surely the chosen people, the group of people who had been chosen by God and set apart from the rest of the world, who whom God supernaturally freed from slavery in Egypt. They didn't forget that. They never forgot that. Who gave them an abundant land. The people to whom God had spoken to through the prophets, promising them a Messiah would would come and take care of their every need. Surely this group of people would accept Him. They should have been looking for Him. They were looking for Him. But he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Here's the shocking irony. The Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, has hundreds of specific prophecies relating to Jesus the Messiah. God gave them these prophecies so that they would recognize Jesus as their Messiah. And still they killed him for blasphemy. Jesus came as light to everyone, to his own. But we see in verses 12 and 13 that he is light to believers. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Think about that. If a stranger asks you for some help, can I have some money for a meal I haven't eaten in days? and you buy him a meal, you have done a good thing, right? You should do that. What about when someone murders your child, but then needs help, and instead of just buying them a meal, you take them into your house and call them your son? That's what Jesus, that's what God the Father has done through Jesus for us. Adoption, what a wonderful concept. He takes individuals who are enemies, despicable, dirty sinners, and rather than giving us what we deserve, he makes us his very own. He would be absolutely just and right to give us what we deserve. He would be right and just to give us what we deserve. We deserve eternal damnation separated from him. Instead, he takes his beloved son, his only begotten son sends him to earth to be ridiculed, to be despised, to be rejected and to be crucified on our behalf to purchase our redemption, to purchase our adoption. Verse 13 says, uh, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So uh, those who become children of God by, by grace through faith, those who become children of God do so not because 
of blood. What does he mean by that? We'll get to that. And not because of uh, the will of the flesh, uh, a personal desire, nor of the will of man. We become children of God because of the will of God. Born not of blood. In other words, our salvation is not due to our bloodline. It is a great blessing to have parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great, however many generations you can point to if you, if you have that blessing. It's great to have generations of godly people. But my parents' salvation did not save me. And your parents' salvation did not save you. Put it this way, God doesn't have grandkids. He only has children. And so if, if my children are going to be believers in Jesus Christ, uh, it's not going to be simply because they have parents who are saved. They have to believe themselves. Now, having saved parents is a great Blessing. In fact, many of us are believers because of the influence of our parents. Our parents taught us from the Word of God and had us in, in church and in Sunday school and, and kept exposing us to the Word of God. And the Word of God took root by the power of God, and we believed. But having saved parents does not guarantee saved children. They're not born of blood, not born of a bloodline is what that phrase means. Secondly, not born of the will of the flesh, so not of self-determination. So no one is automatically saved because of the family that they're born into, and no one becomes saved because they just will themselves into it. No one believes without the Spirit of God drawing that individual to himself. We talked about this with a little bit of depth last week in, in Ephesians 2, is where we went. What's Ephesians 2 say? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. That's our natural state. Dead things don't do anything. Dead things cannot will themselves to believe. Dead things cannot will themselves into salvation. But Ephesians 2 continues to show how we are made spiritually alive by God. But God in his mercy, in his generosity, in his love, he saves us. Jesus taught quite specifically that God himself must draw us to the point of believing. We simply cannot do it ourselves. And if, you, if you're unsure of this doctrine, then turn with me to John chapter 6. John 6 is a very long chapter. This is uh, maybe two-thirds of the way down or so. John chapter 6, verse 43. Jesus is speaking to uh, some Jews who... Uh, are becoming antagonistic to the things that he has been saying to them. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 43, Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Who comes to the Savior? Those whom the Father draws. Uh, a synonym, synonym, not cinnamon, a synonym for the word draw is 
Hall, H-A-U-L. Those who come to saving faith are the ones that God hauls in, like a fisherman hauls in a net. They were grumbling because they didn't believe him. And Jesus is basically saying, don't worry that you don't believe. You're not going to believe unless God is hauling you. And he wasn't hauling them, at least not at that time. We're still in verse 13 of chapter 1. Who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. That's that next phrase. Born not of the will of man. So uh, we aren't saved because we will ourselves to be saved. And we're not saved because someone else wills us to be saved. As a father, I cannot make my children believe. As a pastor, I can't make you believe. Oh, if I could... I confess I don't particularly like this doctrine. I would much rather have the capacity to cause my children to believe. I would much rather have the ability to just walk down the aisles and, and tap your shoulder and make you believe. It would be fantastic if I could stand here and preach the gospel and Every person who connects the logical flow of the gospel would respond in faith. And the gospel is logical, isn't it? It does make sense. There is a God. God tells us specifically that everyone knows there is a God. Now, they may convince themselves otherwise, but everyone knows there is a God. Creation is proclaiming it. That's Psalm 19 and Psalm 51. It's Romans chapter 1, where they know that there is a God, there is an eternal God that they know is powerful and eternal and wise and good, but they reject Him. The gospel is logical. There is a God who by definition is powerful, loving, holy, incapable of wrong, incapable of being with those who are wrong. And there's people. We are not powerful. We are not holy. And though we desire to have eternal life, we are mortal. Sin and death are our problem. And the problem is compounded by the fact that we can do nothing significant to fix either of those things. We can't skip death. We might be able to push it back a little ways. But we can't skip it. We can't undo a single sin. Our two problems are sin and death, and there's nothing we can do to fix it. The logical solution to a problem when you can't fix it is find someone else who can. If your transmission is slipping and you don't have the capacity to fix it yourself, take it to a mechanic, preferably a good one. Get your money's worth. We have a problem. The logical solution is find someone who can fix it. Jesus is that someone. He lived a perfect life in our place. He died a sinner's death in our place. 
And God has declared that we can have the righteousness of Jesus credited to us and our sins removed when we put our faith in him alone. Salvation really isn't more complicated than that. Yes, we'll spend decades growing in Christ. We call that discipleship, uh, where we uh, get more skilled at pursuing righteousness and leaving sin behind. Okay, that's discipleship. That takes all of our lives. But the actual gospel story, the actual theology of salvation is really quite simple. There's a God and there's us and we have a problem and he fixed it for us. All we have to do is come to him in faith. Not difficult. It would be amazing if everyone who heard the logical progression of the gospel story would just simply accept it and believe. So why is it that people can understand the gospel? They can understand the problem and their dilemma and they can understand the solution and that all they have to do is receive that, that solution through trusting God. Why don't they all respond? Well, spiritually dead people need more than information. They need God to work in them so they can respond so yes share the gospel with your unsaved friends and family share the gospel with people you aren't friends with and you don't even like share the gospel with co-workers and neighbors share the gospel with anyone who will listen and if god's working in them they will respond and if god's not working in them then pray that he would People who believe don't do so because of bloodline or because of their own will or because someone else willed it for them. No, those who believe on Jesus do so by the will of God. We're still in John 1, verse 13. Now, for those of you who are believers, is that your recollection of it? It's not mine. I remember being convicted of my sin and responding in faith as a child. I don't remember God making me believe. But the word of God is clear. See, this is kind of, I'm sorry to call theology like making sausage, but it is. We know the end result of that sausage that is perfectly cooked and with whatever sides you like with it or whatever meat you like, I don't care. How it got there we might not understand. Now, this is a farming community. We probably do understand. Uh, I'll grant you that. But the reality is, is our observation of our salvation isn't necessarily what was going on in the background. If you're a believer here today, you are so because God drew you to that point and thank him for it. He didn't have to. The word of God is clear those who come to faith in Jesus do so because God draws them to the point of responding in faith and repentance. Um, at Thanksgiving, I was at my parents' house, and Dad has this planter by the window that has some herbs in it, and I commented on how nice they looked, and um, he, he just had two different types. Like, don't you want some more? Do you want another variety? And he goes, you know, I'd like to have some basil. So I went home. I had some basil seeds, 
and uh, I've got a grow light, I've got some soil, stuck them in the soil, gave them some water, and I now have a basil plant to give my dad for Christmas. A basil seed, first of all, I love the smell of basil, so this was not a chore for me at all. Uh, a basil seed sitting in the package, I've had this package for a couple years, um, it does nothing when it's in the package, right? I could take a seed, in fact, I'm sure I spilled some, so there are some seeds laying on the floor, because I haven't cleaned up yet, leave me alone, that have been in the light, and they have not responded to the light. Why have those seeds not responded to the light? They're in the same light that this other seed that is planted in the soil has grown into a plant. Why do those seeds on the ground not respond to the light? Because it needs more than light, right? Jesus is the light of the world. Yes, we need light, but that germination has to take place first. For a a basil plant, uh, it, it wants nice, moist soil at 80 degrees. So get your heating mat out, and I've got a nice basil plant. But for the seeds that aren't, haven't given the opportunity to germinate, they're not growing. The same is true in our spiritual lives. If God doesn't do the germination, if God doesn't draw, the light has no effect. Verse 14. The light is with us. The light came for everyone, for his own For believers, and the light is with us. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Ladies and gentlemen, this verse is the incarnation. This verse is the Christmas story in one sentence. This verse is God coming to earth, becoming man while retaining his glory. Incarnation literally means in the flesh. If you go to a restaurant and order chili con carne, you should expect to receive a thick, spicy sauce that has meat. Carne, meat, incarnation. Jesus came in the flesh. The doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus Christ is not that that the eternal Jesus placed himself inside of flesh. No, the Bible is clear. Jesus became flesh. He did not become half man and half God. The Bible does not say that we have Jesus with flesh. We have Jesus, rather, as flesh. He became man. Now, it doesn't makes sense to us to say that he's 100% God and 100% man because that's 200% and we can't deal with that. So we don't talk about the incarnation with percentages. The biblical understanding of the incarnation is that Jesus was always fully God and then when he was supernaturally conceived in Mary, he took on flesh, becoming fully man while retaining his full deity. So, In speaking of Jesus, I'm always careful to phrase it like this, that he is fully God and fully man. We see this full definition on display in, in this verse. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Mary was most certainly Jesus' mom in every biological sense of the word. 
Jesus became fully human inside his mother. Joseph, however, was not his physical dad. And praise God for that, because sin passes from generation to generation through the Father. Thank you, Adam. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We talked about this last Sunday night at the Christmas program. The the wonder of wonders that God would dwell with man. What a joyful, joyful concept all by itself. If there's any word associated with Christmas that ought to spark a smile on your face, it's the word Emmanuel. It means God with us. It means that the promises of the Old Testament are true. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Jesus took on flesh, yes, yet he retained his status as God. That's the glory that he speaks of. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is God the Son. And all throughout his ministry, the, the last, three, last three years he spent on earth, his ministry, all throughout that time he proved over and over and over again that he indeed was God. Through countless miracles, culminating with the resurrection of Lazarus and then the resurrection of himself. Not only did he rise from the grave, he visibly ascended into heaven, again, proving that he is God. God became man. What are you going to do with this profound truth? If you are already a believer in Jesus Christ, this this truth should bring about a steadiness in your life, a stability in your life. And here's what I mean. When life gets hard, I mean really, really hard. The truth that Jesus came to earth and died to save you and give you eternity away from the problems of this earth should keep you steady during those hard times. The truth that that God became man to save us, bring steadiness in our life in hard times, but also in easy times. Whatever successes or joys that you find in this lifetime, the truth that Jesus came for you should help you balance the greater joys of heaven against the joys of this earth. So you continue to steadily pursue your greatest joy, Jesus, rather than putting so much stock in the fleeting joys of this world. What are you going to do with the the eternally profound truth that God became man? As a believer, that ought to spark some joy in your life. That ought to motivate conversations that you need to have with unbelievers in your life. If you are an unbeliever, if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, if God is drawing you to himself, if he's hauling you in this morning, don't delay. Respond to the prompting of the Spirit by admitting that you are a sinner, that you have a problem by believing that Jesus is God, the Savior, who has the only solution to your problem, and then call upon the name of the Lord. That's the ABCs 
of the gospel story. Admit your sins. That's Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Believe Jesus is God and Savior. Admit, believe. Romans 10, 9, and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, which means that He is Master and God, that He is the Creator, if you believe that He is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. It doesn't say you'll be put on a waiting list or be put on hold. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The C is call. Admit your sin, believe Jesus, and call on his name, which comes just a couple verses later in Romans chapter 10, where it says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus came to earth. God became man. He is the Messiah. He came to save This time, the next Advent, he's going to come to rule and reign. We can look forward to that. That's the part that the Jews were looking for. They were looking for the king. What they got is the Savior, which they needed much more than they needed the king. He came to save. Let's thank him for it. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for who you are, that you are the eternal, holy, powerful, almighty God. That there is none like you. That you saw fit to create and to give us life, to give us consciousness, to give us sentience, so that we might understand the difference between right and wrong. Father, each one of us has chosen wrong. We have chosen to sin because it's in our nature. But you sent Jesus to give us a new nature, to take away our sin guilt and to add a new nature to us so that we can grow in obedience, so that we can live like our Savior. So we can grow bit by bit, day by day, until we see Him face to face and are made whole. Oh, Father, we look forward to that day. We thank you for Jesus who became man so that we could have life. That we could have it abundantly, that we could have it eternally, that we could have it with the Savior who so lovingly sacrificed himself for us. Father, thank you for these wonderful, eternal, profound truths. Help us to cling to them. I pray that these truths would guide us as we live day in and day out that we might bring glory and honor to your name, and it's in his name that we pray.